Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The GameStop circus moves on, and investors turn to hopes of more help from Congress and of more vaccines on their way. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. It seems as if everyone in America with access to a microphone has been telling us this week with stunning hindsight precisely why the Dow Jones Industrials took a record 508-point, 22.6% nosedive Monday. Time alone will tell whether Black Monday enters the history book as the day American confidence was so shaken that a premature recession resulted. That was Louis Rukeyser on Wall Street Week back in 1987, after Black Monday. Markets have been shaken again over the past two weeks as Reddit day traders boosted shares of companies like GameStop and sent short-selling hedge funds running, with long short funds losing 6% overall last month and Melvin Capital alone plummeting 53%. But most hedge funds emerged unscathed. And Steve Cohen's 0.72 even attracted $1.5 billion in new money. Here's Swetha Ramachandran, GAM Investment Manager. I assume hedge funds are probably reluctant to short uh, small cap stocks right now for the fear that the Reddit uh, brigade might be behind those. But by early this week, GameStop's to the moon rally started to come back toward Earth. And not even the Reddit flash mob or changes at the top of the company could get the irrational exuberance going again reminding us why hedge funds and short sellers target companies like GameStop. The investor that gets caught in the updraft on that and doesn't understand that investing, while it looks like it's all going up, did the person who clicked the last buy understand that that could happen to them that quickly? That's former E-Tread Financial CEO Carl Rossner. I asked Council on Foreign Relations Senior Fellow Sebastian Malaby if anything will fundamentally change 
in the hedge fund world? I don't really. I mean, I think that hedge funds, which of course go back to the 60s at least, um, have proven to be an amazingly robust platform from which to think creatively about risk. Um, and so they adapt, you know, they get new stuff, gets thrown in their ways. When they began, there was no such thing as trading currencies because currencies were all fixed together. Bond markets hardly existed. You had to trade stocks by appointment. Uh, and they adapted all the way through that as everything changed, you know, fintech, um, the advent of Reddit, the advent of Robinhood. This is just the latest iteration in a long, long history of financial innovation. And every time hedge funds figure it out. You also have regulators trying to figure it out, as it were, after the fact. We have the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen now saying uh, she's meeting with regulators saying we need to take a hard look at this about the volatility and whether this might actually put in jeopardy some investors. We also have hearings in Congress coming up. Uh, do you expect there might be some tweaking, at least, of the regulations? I think with respect to Robinhood and the fact that it had to close down access to trading on certain stocks, that's the kind of market interruption which regulators ought to take action on. Um, you need the infrastructure of trading uh, to be robust. You, you, know, you need to look at the plumbing, as some regulators put it. Um, so I think that part of the system will definitely deserve a fresh look. What about on the short selling side? There have been proposals, as you know well, uh, for short sellers to have to disclose their positions, individual positions, uh, which is done, as I understand it, in Europe. Uh, do you think there might be a renewal of that call? And by the way, why do we have to disclose on the long side and not the short? I'm not sure actually that uh, hedge funds do disclose on the long side unless they buy more than that disclosable threshold. I believe it's 5% or something uh, of the company. So you can get away with a lot without disclosing. Um, I think, you know, when you are taking a really big position, um, probably there's a, it becomes a systemic threat to you. Um, you know, you might blow up if that position were to go very badly wrong. Uh, and so regulators who care about the soundness of the system overall have a legitimate interest. But I think, you know, small positions shouldn't have to be disclosed. But we certainly had some large hedge funds who, who took a big hit. Uh, and I wonder whether that did suggest there could be systemic risk here. Well, the beauty uh, of hedge funds is that through their long history, they've proven to be small enough to fail. Uh, not too big to fail, they actually can blow up. And people often cite long-term capital management in 1998 uh, as the big exception. Actually, if you go back and look at that incident, the New York Fed convened the banks to recapitalize it, but no taxpayer money, zero, went in. So freestanding hedge funds, I'm not counting here the subsidiary of Bear Stearns that went wrong in 08, but freestanding hedge funds have never had a taxpayer bailout. Melvin Capital has not needed a taxpayer bailout. That's the good thing about hedge funds. That's one of the ironies you point out in your Washington Post column, actually, that uh, on Reddit, people were saying, look, at uh, the government bailed out these hedge funds. In fact, they didn't get bailed out in 2008, 2009 at all. Pretty much everybody did. AIG and insurer, all sorts of uh, broker dealers like... Uh, you know, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers went wrong. Um, the money market sector, the whole thing went wrong. But uh, there isn't an example of a freestanding hedge fund uh, that needed a bailout. You mentioned Robinhood and its role in all this and the fact that it had to curtail trading at one point. Uh, is there room for requiring larger reserves? Coming out of 2008, 2009, uh, I think it's fair to say the banks had to have larger uh, reserves to protect the system overall. Did this suggest that particularly when it comes to things like sort of a flash mob phenomenon in social media, maybe the broker dealers have to have larger reserves? Yes, I do think that. And I think particularly the newer 
brokers like Robinhood, which have emerged on the West Coast. They're a fintech. They're not a kind of traditional Wall Street firm. Um, those guys have often grown so quickly that the regulators are behind the curve. Uh, and so I think that is a legitimate you know, focus for, for the government. Thanks to Sebastian Malaby of the Council on Foreign Relations. Coming up, big tech gets big earnings, but that doesn't keep Jeff Bezos at the helm of Amazon. Sam Palmisano ran IBM and he says it's understandable. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The Everything Store is getting a new CEO. Amazon's founder Jeff Bezos is stepping down as CEO to become executive chairman later this year. Here's company CFO Brian Olsofsky. I will reiterate that Jeff is not leaving. He is uh, getting a new job. Over the last 25 years, under Bezos' leadership, an idea for an online bookstore evolved into a $1.7 trillion company that changed the face of retail. Like many Silicon Valley success stories, Amazon started in a garage after Jeff Bezos left his job as a vice president at D.F. Shaw in 1994. In the late 1990s, the startup expanded its offerings from books and music to include consumer goods. I emailed a, a, a thousand randomly selected customers and asked them, besides the things we sell today, what would you like to see us sell? I remember one of the answers was, I wish you sold windshield wiper blades because I really need windshield wiper blades. <laughs> and I thought to myself, we can sell anything this way. That's Jeff Bezos in 2018. Even after Amazon went public, it failed to turn a profit until 2001. Bezos' business model of keeping inventory low and selling products for low prices saved the company during the dot-com bubble, even as peers like Pets.com went bust. Here's Scott Kessler from Third Bridge. He obviously is going to have huge influence still, but it's going to be more from a vision and strategic perspective. Bezos returned to his passion for books when Amazon released its first Kindle in 2007, changing the way people read books. While building an e-commerce empire, Bezos also wears a couple of other hats as the owner of the Washington Post and founder of the space company Blue Origin. So I think it leaves Jeff Bezos able to concentrate on building rockets and the things that he wants to do with someone at the helm that he can really trust. That's Melissa Burdick, the president of PacView. More recently, Amazon's profit engine has been its cloud computing arm, Amazon Web Services, which launched in 2003. 
AWS accounted for 60% of Amazon's operating income in 2020, making Amazon the world leader in cloud computing. And so it should come as no surprise that Bezos' successor will be the man who runs AWS, Andy Jassy. Here's Estimize CEO Lee Drogan. I think this makes total sense. I think it's underappreciated just how amazing and innovative and important to everything that goes on basically in technology today that AWS is and was. Wall Street Week contributor Sam Palmasano ran IBM and he says it's understandable that Jeff Bezos has decided to make the transition. Well, it's a, really a hard thing to do. I mean, for, especially when you've built the company. I mean, uh, one thing I was nine to 10 years as CEO and I grew up in IBM, I love IBM obviously, but it wasn't mine, it wasn't my creation, it was the Watson family. And so if you're the founder like Jeff, I can imagine it's a very, very difficult decision to make. However, at the same time, he's really not leaving the company because he's still executive chairman. So he still has a role. But at the same time, his role at the company is going to be different. The company is different at this point as well. It's not at this meteoric rise that it's had. It's now getting besieged by the government. Yeah, well, that's exactly, it's quite interesting, as you know, and the same things happened to other companies. We've talked about Microsoft, IBM, AT&T. And it's, I, I would, you know, I look back on it, it comes with success. I mean, when you're that successful and you get that large, people are going to come after you. And usually it's your competition, quite honestly, but then they lobby the various government entities and then politics takes over. And then you find yourself in these difficult situations. In my experience, the founders have a very hard time with that. They can't understand how that could happen. I'm not saying that's the case for Jeff, but my experience with both talking with Bill Gates and spending a lot of time, because I used to support Mr. Watson Jr. Uh, as when I was executive assistant to the chairman and the CEO of IBM. Uh, and I had firsthand conversations with him. So you could see as a founder why that was a very hard thing for him to psychologically cope with. Well, I mean, you ran a big company that was under siege from the government. Is it possible, not just for psychological reasons, not, not as much fun to defend, but also for the sake of the company, is it better to have somebody a little more detached where it's not literally their child? I think that, that that's the way to think about it. I mean, basically what happened in IBM's example, um, and I spent a time with Tom Watson and then it was Frank Carey who became chairman and then John Opel who became CEO. But Mr. Watson uh, made a decision and he was still the founder and the majority shareholder, but made a decision that Kerry would become chairman and work with the government and try to resolve the suit and John would run the company. So they really, it was a kind of a division of responsibilities. I think that's really, really important because it's really hard not to get distracted. If you look what happens long-term over these suits, IBM, we missed a thing called client server. Microsoft obviously did extremely well there. Microsoft missed the internet, you know, and I think it's distraction. I really think a lot of that is because when you are the CEO and you're also dealing with the government suit between the legal pressures and the advice you're getting from counsel on how you should proceed and how you should set strategy, the company gets distracted for a period of time. In our case, that was almost 10 years. In Microsoft's case, I think it was more than 10, maybe 12, AT&T. You know, that happens. And then as a result of that, you miss these big technological shifts. One of the things that uh, no one's been distracted from is the cloud. Uh, the dramatic rise in the cloud, including at Amazon, not limited to Amazon, it's 
probably no coincidence that the person succeeding Jeff Bezos really was running the cloud operation at Amazon. What do you make of that change in technology overall, that huge move into the cloud? Well, it's interesting because if you, and if you think about where Amazon began, they were selling as you know, tapes and books on the internet, basically, right? Now they're the largest uh, pr- provider of cloud services through AWS, which, you know, as you know, Andy was running uh, at Amazon. Now, having said all that, uh, it's a huge transition of the infrastructure. I think a thing you might find of interest there is that if you look at the most recent CEO appointments over the past couple of years, they all have cloud experience. Mm-hmm. Amazon, Google, Microsoft, IBM, right? So that indicates that the, uh, the leadership of those companies have concluded that the skill set required for the future is someone who understands those technologies that are going to transition those companies and those business models into this cloud era and put on top of that artificial intelligence. It's a compounding of both of those things. But all those people have those backgrounds. Uh, so I think there's a, it's an interesting pattern emerging here when it comes to leadership of these tech companies. We've already seen dramatic growth in, in the cloud business overall, just the business growing. How far along the curve are we? I mean, how far are we away from it being a mature business, as it were? Oh, it's very early stage. I mean, it's been going on, I'm going to guess, 10, 15. If you go back to the early days of research, and I was still working back then, a lot of this stuff was in research or in academic institutions. And then it went from simple things like application development to actually doing production work, you know, real work that companies do in their core in a safe and, and resilient way. So now it's going to go beyond that. It's going to support all these advanced technologies as far as application, I mean, I'm sorry, artificial intelligence and those sorts of things. That was former IBM CEO, Sam Palmasano. Coming up, the prospects for another round of fiscal stimulus. Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia says Democrats are committed to getting it done one way or the other. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. President Biden pressed his case for another $1.9 trillion in stimulus money to support the U.S. economy, including meeting at the White House with 10 Republican senators who have proposed a compromise package that would get bipartisan support. We talked with one of those who met with the president, Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, for her take on that meeting. He didn't make any promises. He listened intently. He was very well prepared. And he seemed to be interested, particularly in the targeting numbers on individual checks in terms of do we really want to be sending checks to families that are making $300,000 a year whose lives really have not changed? And so I think that was the biggest area that he signaled that he might make some uh, make some adjustments, but we, that's yet to be seen. There are some reports on the Bloomberg, actually, about the very point you just made, that if you really look at the upper end before it really phases out, there are some people who are making a fair amount of money and, as you say, maybe didn't lose their jobs. Do you have an approach in your compromise proposal to deal with that? And did the president indicate maybe that made sense? that sort of approach? Well, what we did was we lowered the uh, the income level of which you would be available to get a stimulus check to about 150000 per couple. And we felt like, and the statistics bear out that you're using this as stimulus. This is money we want back into the economy. And at those income levels where people really are hurting, maybe can't pay their rent, buy their food, uh, they are spending their stimulus checks. If you get up into over two hundred dollars or $300,000, people are saving it or they're, they're not using it 
to provide that stimulus that we really need to keep this economy moving. And, and also, I think, do we really want to be sending taxpayer dollars to people who have had really little or no effect during this pandemic? Talk about climate for a second, because President Biden has been fairly aggressive in executive orders so far. And your home state of West Virginia, do you envision a world in which you can redirect your economy into clean energy and actually keep the jobs or even increase the jobs? Well, let's look at what a state like West Virginia has provided and provides for the nation. We have natural resources of coal and natural gas that we've powered this nation for uh, over a century. And, and we have a lot of great, hardworking people. We're looking for stability and we're looking for easier transitions. We did not get that in the Obama administration. The troubling thing to me is it's the same faces in the Biden administration. And that signals to me that they have no interest in taking into consideration the ravage that uh, the policies wreak on uh, places like West Virginia. But we are transitioning in West Virginia to a more high-tech economy. We're working as hard as we can to work with research and development to keep those energy uh, processes moving. But we cannot just drop certain people off of the ledge like the, like we were dropped off uh, over the last eight years of the Obama administration and think it's okay because joblessness, depression, rise in opioid and drug addiction, it's been really devastating for our state and tough for me to watch as a native West Virginian. The Senate has other business it has to attend to with a trial of uh, Pre former President Trump coming up on impeachment charges. Is there any prospect of his being convicted? And, and specifically, as I understand it, you were one of the Republican senators who voted to say, actually, it shouldn't even be going forward because he's no longer in office. So those people who voted that way, there's no way you're going to convict him having said you shouldn't be having a trial, right? And doesn't that take care of the two-thirds requirement? You know, I, I, I am charged as being a juror, and I'm going to listen to what comes through in the impeachment trial. But I do believe, as I voted, that uh, the Constitution says that you would uh, remove and, uh, and prevent the president from running again. Well, we can't remove an impeachment because he's not the president. So that sort of nullifies, in my view, the, the vision that the founders had and making it, uh, uh, I think, a strong constitutional uh, argument that you can't impeach a president who's already out of office. So uh, I think a lot of us felt that way. I think it's going to be difficult to convict, but we haven't heard the evidence yet, and I think I would reserve judgment on that. So, Senator, I want to wrap this up by letting you brag on your state here a little bit, because your vaccination yeah. rates in West Virginia are pretty impressive. What are you doing in West Virginia? What can you teach the rest of us? You know what we're doing in West Virginia is we're utilizing all of our local assets. Uh, the governor has done a great job, along with the National Guard, our local pharmacies, our city mayors and counties. Uh, our county health departments have been fantastic. The, the federal government laid out a plan for vaccination uh, delivery and, and dispensing. We went away from that and created our own plan, because we know each other best. And so we have the best vaccine, vaccine distribution in the country. We're proud of it. We have, I think, a, um, a, 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 way, a, a way forward for states to get more shots in the arms quicker. And that's what we're doing in West Virginia. We have a vulnerable population. and It was really important that we get those nursing home and assisted living folks taken care of first. We knew where they all were because we've been testing them. So it's just really been a, a, um, a logistical uh, win for us. And we're really proud of it. What's that going to do for your economy? Because a lot of people are concerned if you can't get them vaccinated, you can't get people back out to restaurants and things like that. 
Well, our schools reopened uh, about two weeks ago, and uh, and you know there's been some pushback, like we see across the nation. But by and large, they're reopened, and that's big. Our restaurants are reopening, uh, and as we get this vaccine distribution, we get those double shots for the ones that need the two shots. Uh, I think by the time our great tourism uh, season comes along in the spring, we have a great winter one too. In the spring, uh, it's going to be great. We have a new national park in West Virginia. We were able to get at the end of the year, so we got lots to see. That was. Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia. Coming up, we wrap up the week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to wrap up the week, as always, with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, I guess the big news really this week is about the stimulus bill, that $1.9 trillion President Biden is proposing. It was thought it might be bipartisan. Now it looks like he's going to really push it through no matter whether Republicans come aboard or not. You were in the Obama administration when you went for a big stimulus package. And some people think you didn't go far and fast enough. Do you agree with President Biden's approach that he's got to get this thing through? Let me just first say, David, that I don't think there's any question that in retrospect, it would have been better if we'd done larger stimulus during the Obama administration. I think we understood that at the time. The constraint, uh, read President Obama's memoirs, was not an economic judgment It was a political judgment about what could pass through the Congress, given the consensus that existed at that time, given where Republicans were and given where Democrats like Senator Kent Conrad and Byron Dorgan and Nelson uh, from Nebraska were at that time. So I think the lesson that we need more stimulus, um, we wish we'd had more stimulus, is really a, a valid lesson. I'm not in a position to judge uh, the tactics. It's certainly better to do things on a bipartisan basis, but negotiation is about leverage. And if the Democrats have no capacity to act on their own, they don't have much leverage in a bipartisan negotiation. And so if it's come to the point where they need to do it unilaterally, then that's where it's come to. So I'm not prepared at all to second guess uh, that uh, political judgment. It's a political judgment, not an economic uh, judgment. And it may well be 
necessary given the intransigence of uh, today's Republican Party. I think the really important issues, David, uh, go to how we think about fiscal policy over the course of the whole year. And we need to make sure we're supporting demand. We need to make sure that we're helping people who are in need. We need to take the kind of different perspective on fiscal policy that recent economic thinking about secular stagnation, about low rates has driven us to. But that's not a reason for blank checks. And that's not a reason why any amount of fiscal policy organized in any way um, is appropriate. And I look at the fiscal stimulus under discussion and with the $1.9 trillion, you're talking about something that relative to the GDP gap is six times as large as what we did in 2008. And if that's what we're gonna do, we need to make sure we've got a contingency plan in case we get a perfect combination of good news. The $1.6 trillion in pent up savings gets spent, this fiscal stimulus gets delivered, COVID gets behind us and people feel free uh, to spend. And we have an economy that is literally on fire. And if that happens, we're gonna need a framework uh, for uh, containing uh, things. And there may well be such a framework, but we're gonna need to hear about it from the Treasury Secretary, we're gonna to need to hear about it uh, from the Federal Reserve Chairman. The other question I have is, our economy had fundamental issues before COVID, the need for green investment, the need for investment in a totally decaying infrastructure, the need for investment in opportunity for every child in, uh, the country, and the Build Back Better agenda that President Biden spoke about so eloquently in the campaign. And if we've got 15% of GDP in stimulus being delivered this year with nothing really that's in the Build Back Better agenda, the question arises, how are we going to fund that vital Build Back Better agenda? And maybe the answer is we'll find a way to legislate it and find a way to pay for it through tax increases. And that <clears throat> could be a very, very positive strategy. But <clears throat> if not, we're using up an enormous amount of fiscal space, an enormous amount of political and economic energy on measures that are not building back better. And as I hear people starting to talk about making checks for most Americans into not just a one-off, but a regular fiscal policy, I become uh, concerned. And so those are, I think, the questions that are going to need to be debated and discussed as we come to a conclusion on fiscal stimulus. So, Laurie, let's take a look at that $1.9 trillion package. As you look at it, Give me something you think is absolutely essential, must go forward with. Give me something that 
is sort of nice, optional, or maybe we even shouldn't do? Spending every dollar we can productively and effectively spend is very, very important. And we should certainly do it on COVID, on COVID cure, on vaccination, on testing, on contact tracing, on epidemiological and biological research. Every dollar that can usefully be spent on something that's costing us tens of billions of dollars a week is an investment we absolutely should make as a country. Do we need to be providing my children with $2,000 tax credits? Do we need to be providing families in the upper 10% of the income distribution with uh, families of four with $8,000 in government uh, cash? Should that be an urgent priority um, that comes before fixing the potholes in the highways, that comes before uh, green investment? I'm not sure. And especially since the political window is short, especially since the time to start implementing the programs is long, I would rather see us pivot much more quickly to building back better than see us uh, in a position of using up all the energy and having the huge big thing be um, the provision of funding um, in a very general uh, way, especially if that's a precedent setting uh, thing that we're then gonna feel pressure to continue going forward. So let's conclude with a rapid fire round of summer says and pick up on something you just said, number one, you referred to GameStop. If we end up with Robin Hood against the regulators in Washington, because the regulators are certainly going after this thing, who's going to win? Regulators. I think you're going to see a, a lot of attention to issues around manipulation and retail protection uh, I don't yet, I don't feel I know what the right public policy answers are, but I think there's a pretty pervasive and pretty valid sense that the spectacle of the last two weeks and the possible systemic risk that could have happened of another LTCM type situation in the last two weeks, that public policy should be working to avoid that. And I suspect that we'll see new rules and regulations. We heard this week from the Bank of England, uh, and they didn't change any of their decision-making, but they once again sort of had a both ways on negative interest rates. We're not doing it now. We're not saying we're going to do it, but don't be surprised if we do it at some point down the road. When history is written, will negative interest rates prove to have been a success or a failure? I don't think they're going to be remembered as a great success. I think they're going to be remembered more as a sign of desperation in a very difficult uh, time. And people are gonna wish that we had used fiscal policy more actively. And so there'd been less need for monetary policy. Okay, Larry, thank you so very much for concluding the week for us as you always do. That's Larry Summers, our special Wall Street Week contributor from Harvard. Finally, one more thought. Everybody's doing it. No, I'm not talking about buying call options on highly shorted stocks or planning vacations for whenever they let us out of this cage that is our home, or even buying a COVID puppy. No, the craze that has truly taken over the country is the SPAC, 
that special purpose acquisition company, begun back in 1993 as a last resort for companies that couldn't manage an IPO. SPACs have become all the rage in this world of cheap money, low returns, and volatile markets that make it really hard to price a traditional IPO if you're a private company on the rise. Just raise the money without telling anyone what you want to buy, make a deal, and presto changeo, you have a public company where there was a private one. So, if you're a former senior member of the Trump administration, what do you do next? Well, for former Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, you create a SPAC. And whom do you bring in to help you run it? Former director of the National Economic Council, Larry Kudlow. They've announced plans to raise $345 million for their new SPAC. They haven't said what sectors they'll be looking at, although Mr. Ross has always expressed interest in the privatization of space. And Mr. Kudlow, well, Mr. Kudlow, as we know, knows the media rather well. But in the end, maybe the price is right for a big private leisure and hospitality group, something like maybe the Trump Organization. It would be one way to turn the table on your old boss. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.